You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananon, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loining, MD, Charles, Logan, The Knight of Dampier, Commodore Obvious, Pablo, Toves, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Kenway, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Don, Jesse, Lexi, Patrick, and Stephen. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. There is a ship I have wanted to talk about for a long time. She's among the most famous ships of all time, not necessarily because of piracy, that comes into play later, she's most famous because of a shipwreck. This ship was one of only a scant few Spanish treasure ships ever to be lost at sea. However, this tale is a complicated one to tell. For a number of reasons. First of all, the Englishmen who brought this tale to light were confused about a number of the facts, which was only compounded by the fact that the Spanish were so closed-mouthed about the whole affair. They assumed, correctly, as it turned out, that admitting or confirming even the smallest of details in this story would show the growing internal weakness of their empire. And then there are the pirates. Those who told any part of their story almost certainly lied about it. So it's a complicated story, difficult to sift through. However, we're going to tell it anyway. Thanks to the hard work of a lot of modern marine archaeologists and historians and treasure hunters, we have a good idea of what happened here. So I'm going to try to dive into this story properly and really give it the justice that it deserves. This is episode 174, Nuestra Señora de la Concepción. The very first problem we encounter in telling the tale of this particular ship comes from the name. La Nuestra Señora de la Concepción, it's in honor of Mary, the mother of Jesus, one of the most important figures in the entire Catholic faith. Now, Many ships were given feminine names all throughout history, and there is an interesting conversation to be had about that tidbit. It's though the reason that we have so many ships named Mary or Elizabeth, 
In the Spanish world, though, a deeply Catholic civilization, there was only one woman, given the opportunity they wanted to name their ship after, the Mother Mary. There were a ton of ships christened Nuestra Señora de la Concepción all around the world all the time. When you stretch the timeline out over, say, a couple of centuries, it gets unbelievably complex, and that's where the confusion begins to set in. Back in the 1630s, the most prominent Nuestra Señora at sea was a Manila galleon. It's a ship that we've actually met on this show. Sir Francis Drake encountered La Nuestra Señora, nicknamed the Caca del Fuego, or the Shitfire, on his voyage of circumnavigation way back in the late 1500s. At that time, the Caca del Fuego was one of the finest ships sailing. She was a proper Spanish galleon. When the galleon was still the uncontested queen of the seas, Francis Drake went up against her. Now, he had surprise on his side, but it proved to be the engagement that made his bones and secured his legend, not in English society, but among those with fewer scruples. You know, a young new crewman on a pirate vessel might say, hey, why don't we go after one of those galleons and one of the more experienced men on board might say, what do you think you are, Francis Drake? Smack him upside the head and they would move on, because it was a bad idea. By the 1630s, the Caca del Fuego was making the route across the Pacific four times a year. She would travel from Manila to Acapulco, back to Manila, and then to Panama. That was the first and arguably most dangerous leg of the Spanish treasure fleet, which we all remember how that works, right? A huge fleet would carry all the riches of the East to either Panama or Mexico, only to be carried overland by a mule train. Then they would be picked up in Veracruz or Portobello, taken to Havana, and finally, on to Spain. This was the lifeline of the Spanish Empire. That infusion of riches twice a year was virtually the only income that the Spanish throne had coming in. About half of that went directly to the crown to pay off soldiers and creditors, and the other half went to rich Spanish landowners who used most of the money to pay their taxes. It was almost all going to the crown one way or another. If even a single one of those shipments was delayed, it could be a serious problem for the Spanish. If it didn't arrive at all, it could spell disaster. In 1638, that's exactly what happened. The Nuestra Señora, the Caca del Fuego, was hit by a terrible typhoon, and wrecked just outside of the Philippines. All 400 sailors on board were drowned, and the treasure was lost. Many prominent historians have argued that this one single event directly led to Spain's loss of the Eighty Years' War, directly led to the independence of the Dutch Republic. Spain could no longer pay her soldiers. They mutinied en masse. They could no longer pay the Italian mercenaries who were doing so much of the fighting, who left to take service under German Protestant princes. It was a disaster. We probably couldn't say that it directly led to the end of the Thirty Years' War, but it certainly played a role in the Habsburg monarchy coming to the table to negotiate the Peace of Westphalia. We could, if we were so inclined, trace the basis for the modern map of Europe back to the wreck of the Shitfire. The following year, though, 1639, the king's council ordered the Casa de la Contrición to prepare a new fleet for a voyage to America. And I'll note here that I'm going to be leaning pretty heavily, at least in this first episode, 
on the historian Peter Earle and his book The Treasure of the Concepcion. It's a wonderful book, and this won't be the first time, nor will it be the last, that I've leaned pretty heavily on Mr. Earle. His books The Pirate Wars and The Sack of Panama are well-thumbed additions to my bookshelf. This order by the king to the Casa de la Contrition was pretty routine by this point, but it put them in a difficult position. They had already shifted one of their Atlantic galleons out to the Pacific to replace the Caca del Fuego, and now they needed to find another large, well-armed galleon for the Atlantic fleet. The problem here is, there weren't any available. I mean, they probably could have found a seaworthy ship with sufficient guns and enough space if that was the only requirement. But there were other concerns to take into account here. This ship, this particular voyage, was going to be carrying Don Diego Lopez Baqueo y Bobadilla. Bobadilla was the Marquis of Viena and the Duke of Escalona. That is a long list of titles, but it's nothing compared to what his new job was to be. He was going to take up the position of Viceroy of New Spain. The ship that was to carry the Duke and his entire household and his retinue, well, it had to match the grandeur of that list of titles. A proper Spanish galleon would have done perfectly, one of those old, majestic matrons of the sea. It would have been complete with what Peter Earle calls in his book, quote, enormous, lavishly decorated poops up to forty-five feet high, with four decks of beautifully appointed cabins topped by the privileged poop deck, from which the great could look down at the activity far below. End quote. I can't think of a single better symbol to represent the Spanish Empire at the height of her power, her grandeur. And as it happens, neither could Spain. A ship like that was necessary to carry a of the Duke's stature. But this was not the 1580s. This was the 1640s. At this point, the Dutch had a navy of simple, workmanlike, low-bellied flutes that outclassed the galleon in every possible way except for style. Galleons were a relic. Nobody was building them anymore, but they needed to find at least one for this voyage. The Casa de la Contrition had to search high and low, and the best they found was a privately owned 20-year-old merchant ship. She was not a galleon. She lacked the gun ports and the arms and the armor of a proper galleon. But she did look the part. So Spain hired her for a two-year lease and ordered her refit to imperial standards of a proper treasure galleon. This was a long list of requirements, and it delayed the voyage for almost a year. To get her seaworthy, they used, quote, 50 quintals of tar, 18 of oakum, 12 of hemp, 16 of lead, and two barrels of grease, end quote. They cut new gun ports into her and fitted the hull with iron casings. They installed a new mast and sails and 40 gleaming bronze guns. They turned this merchant vessel into a proper galleon. Almost a proper galleon. She needed a new name, though. They rechristened this newest galleon, La Nuestra Señora de la Concepción, almost a direct replacement of the Caca del Fuego. And then they installed one last 
absolutely necessary piece of art. They carved and painted a brand new figurehead in the form of the Mother Mary. While the pirates might have fearsome devils or topless pirates, the Spanish had the very well-covered Mother of God. Peter Earl goes into great detail listing the cargo on board, both the official cargo and the illicit cargo. There were the trade goods and the cattle, and then there were the stowaways who were certainly not on the manifest. Every man on board carried a little something extra to make ends meet, something that was not recorded. And then there was the duke's retinue, which included nearly all of his household, an army of servants, and no fewer than twelve priests. They had ornate furniture, and they had chests filled with all the trappings of wealth and power that they would not easily be able to find in America. Silk dresses and gold and gems and finery of all kinds. There was an ancient sword and a jeweled hilt. There were guns covered in so much ornate silverwork that I doubt they could fire. This might seem frivolous, but for the man going to be the leader of the new world, it would serve to set him apart. And then they had the food. There were fine wines and dates and good sugar and white flour. They had a retinue of geese and impeccably raised young pigs and two chefs to cook all of it. Most precious of all, though, the duke had a splinter of the one true cross in a well-insulated, iron-bound chest. The ship, by the time everything was on board, was bursting at the seams, as was every other ship in the fleet, and before we set out, it's worth looking at this treasure fleet. The formation of this fleet was laid down by royal decree and enforced by an almost religious authority. It had to look exactly like this. There was the flagship, or Capitana. In this case, this was going to be the Concepcion, and she was to sail well out front. She gave orders to all the other ships in the fleet using flags. She's a flagship. Behind her were 14 smaller cargo ships. Now, they were lightly armed, usually only two, maybe four guns apiece, but they also had less valuable cargo. To either side of those were two fast-moving gunboats, and then bringing up the rear was the vice-admiral, the Almiranta. The Almiranta of this fleet was yet another aging hulk of a bygone age. Her name was the San Pedro y San Pablo. Now, she was in better shape than the Concepcion, but less grand. Her commander was Vice Admiral Juan de Campos, and you need to remember his name. De Campos was an experienced mariner. He was an able seaman. He'd made this voyage more than half a dozen times. He was a good pick for the number two. But that formation, when I say that it was enforced by an almost religious authority, well, it was set in stone. The fleet was not to break that formation. It was tried, and it was true. No one, well, almost no one, had the authority to change the formation, not even the admiral of the fleet. This was a tenant by which every sailor lived. You need to remember that, too. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. A year after her planned departure, with the royal coffers running dangerously low at this point, this treasure fleet set out on the 9th of April, 1640. Earl tells us all about the idle days of the Atlantic crossing, of the fiestas held to honor a variety of different saints, of the grand feasts held by the duke, during which every man and woman of rank on board enjoyed the best food and the best wine and good conversation. He tells us also of the secret liaisons between the women of the duke's household and some of these dashing, rough-cut sailors, the type of men with whom they'd never been in contact before. All in all, it was an easy passage. It went well enough. The fleet passed right by the Canary Islands. They were not permitted to stop there due to fears of pirates. But they made a landing upon reaching the New World at Santo Domingo. There they went ashore, which gave the people of the fleet the first opportunity they had had to meet up with friends who were on board other vessels. It also gave the Duke a very good opportunity to meet one of the governors of his new viceroyalty. That was an important diplomatic stop, but there was a much more tangible reason to stop at Santo Domingo. They were about to sail along the north coast of Hispaniola, and in the 1640s those were becoming dangerous waters. So the Spanish careened their vessels and double-checked the guns and prepared everything for a battle. Near a tiny, almost insignificant little island off the north coast they called Tortuga, a company of French boucaniers sailed out in an attempt to board one of the cargo vessels. Now what happened next is difficult to say. The Spanish tell us a tale of valor against the pirates, which we should not discount. The vice-admiral rushed forward while the gunships pulled back to meet this threat. They fought her off, and the pirates were repelled in a matter of minutes. That's the Spanish version. But then there was a tale told to us by a certain Dutch surgeon. Alexander Exquimelin relates a tale of a buccaneer known as Pierre Legrand. He's purported to be the first buccaneer to capture a ship of any real value. According to legend, 
a Spanish treasure ship. Legrand spotted a straggler to the fleet and sneaked aboard her in the dark of night, dispatched the guards, and took the officers by surprise during a card game. It's an excellent story. However, it's a dubious story. If there is any credibility to that story at all, though, the timeline does fit. Pierre Legrand could have captured this ship in this fleet. I don't think that's the case, but it adds a little spice. The next stop of the Nuestra Señora was at Havana. This was a much more important diplomatic stop. Santo Domingo was a big deal, but Cuba was on another level. The grandees were feasted and fated, and the viceroy got to size up one of his most prominent governors. But eventually they moved on, and finally, the fleet put in at Veracruz on the 24th of June, 1640. The reception that the duke got there is worthy of note. It's a style that would befit a king, or maybe a, a, an early Roman emperor. There were giant outdoor feasts that encompassed the whole of the cathedral's gardens. They had guitar-playing minstrels and dancing girls and dozens of bullfights for an entire week. It was the sort of thing that early modern cities rarely got to see. Eventually, though, the duke and his retinue climbed in their carriages and rode for Mexico City and out of our story. Once all that was done, the crew was able to get back to work. All of the honest cargo on board the Nuestra Señora was unloaded and sent to local warehouses. Then, the crew were permitted to unload their personal, unlicensed cargo and sell it to less-than-reputable merchants. This was important. If they sold it before prying eyes, then royal officials would take their cut. Following that, the crew had some time to spend their profits however they saw fit. There were a few industrious sailors who put their money away and hoped to buy a little plot of land back home, but most of them, well, they spent it on cheap wine and expensive women. The spending of a crew of a treasure ship was never quite as excessive as that of a pirate crew. However, there were many more sailors in a treasure ship, so the infusion to the economy of Veracruz must have been substantial. For weeks on end, the men of the treasure fleet kept the brothels busy and drank the taverns dry. But the weeks dragged on. They were waiting on the Manila galleons to arrive on the other side of the continent. They should have arrived already, but they should be here any day now. But the weeks dragged into months. Fall came then winter, then spring, and then summer again. They spent well over a year there in Veracruz, and the ships were deteriorating at an alarming rate. The hot Mexican sun was melting the tar that held these behemoths together. There were those sea worms so prevalent in the Gulf of Mexico that were eating through their hulls. Now the crews repaired the ships whenever necessary, but as their purses grew lighter and lighter, the crewmen grew less industrious. See, they would not be officially paid until reaching Spain, and even then, they were going to be paid the set, agreed-upon wage for this voyage. They weren't going to get overtime here. Any talk of extra money was put down severely, usually with the whip. And you were told by your superiors that if you persisted in this kind of talk, you were certainly going to burn in hell. 
The Spanish world at this time was still sticking staunchly to the belief that everybody's place on earth was designated by God. Accept your place, peasant, or burn in hellfire. The crew was not happy. When they were eventually convinced to get around to the necessary repairs, they did a poor job. And many of the crew just left. They jumped ship. Some of them took work on private vessels. Some took up work as privateers on foreign ships. Beyond that, this was the first time many of these sailors had ever been to the New World, and they, as to be expected, all got sick. A wave of New World diseases ripped through the crew and killed a lot of them. Yellow fever claimed the life of the Admiral of the fleet. Now, Juan de Campos had been to America many times, so he survived and took up command. But the strength of the crews of this treasure fleet was cut almost in half. But finally, after long, long months, the Manila galleons appeared, and the mule trains carried all of the treasure across mainland Mexico. This was an amazing amount of wealth. It was much more than the traditional twice-yearly treasure fleet, this was the first such voyage in almost three years now. Peter Earle writes, quote, Early in June 1641, after the fleet had spent over a year rotting in idleness in the Mexican port, things began to happen rather more urgently. The financial situation in Spain was now desperate. The new Capitan General, Juan de Campos, received orders to return home that year, not to spend another winter in the Indies. The fleet would have to depart in a hurry if there was to be a chance to sail before hurricane season. Ancient wisdom decreed that the last safe date to sail from Havana for the Bahama Channel was 20th August. He then continues, quote, Slaves and mules sweated and struggled to bring down the treasure from the royal warehouses, ready to be ferried across to the waiting ships. There were some jewels and gold, but practically all the treasure was silver, coined silver, pieces of eight and lesser denominations, stacks of silver ingots of various sizes, silver beaten into plate. All was hauled aboard and stowed away under the careful eye of royal officials. End quote. All of that silver was not to be trusted to those smaller cargo ships. They could carry sugar and other New World trade goods, but not the silver. All of that was hauled on board one of the two primary vessels, either the Capitana or the Almirata, the Nuestra Señora or the San Pedro. Exactly how much silver was there, we can't say with precision. Each ship did have a manifest that details exactly how much was on board, but parts of those manifests have been lost. Now, the city of Veracruz kept a record of all the royal treasure on board, it suggested that over a million pesos was present on each of the ships. That estimate, though, was later contradicted by Juan de Campos. He said that there was a mere 55,000 pesos on the Concepcion. However, he was lying through his teeth. Likely, he was lying on orders from on high. If Spain's creditors learned just how much had been on board these ships, they would have been upset. And really, Spain only had one creditor worth note, the Vatican. So we should take their estimates with a grain of salt. And we should also remember that that was only the royal treasure on board. The privately owned silver, 
that which was destined for landlords and plantation owners and the like, that was probably half again as much as what was in the royal coffers. If we accept that to be the case, we could assume that the fleet carried as much as three million pesos in silver, half on each ship. Now that's probably high, but a reasonable estimation. The British National Archives has a handy calculator that estimates the purchasing power of that amount of silver in 1640, or any year. You could buy, in England, for that much silver, 417,000 horses or 550,000 cows. It would pay the average daily wage of a skilled tradesman, not a mere serf, think a, a cobbler or a butcher or a candle maker, for 42,857,142 days. That is a lot of money. And then things begin to get even more complicated. Before departing Veracruz, a bevy of royal inspectors took one last look at the ships. This was one of those almost religious decrees. It was a royal decree that was strictly enforced to ensure that the treasury would in fact arrive in Spain. Those inspectors... Well, they decried the state of every ship in the fleet. None of them were in good shape. But they did note that the vice-admiral, the San Pedro y San Pablo, was in moderately better condition than the Concepcion. Remember how I said that almost nobody had the authority to make changes in the order and formation of the fleets? It's these inspectors that are the exception to that rule. They ordered that the San Pedro be made the new flagship of the fleet. Now that the Duke was safely on land, they didn't have to worry about grandeur. But it did cause real problems. See, the Admiral, the former Admiral, was dead. And de Campos, the new Capitan General, was fully capable of making the crossing in a less-than-ideal vessel, like the Concepcion. However, the man who took up his position as Vice-Admiral aboard the San Pedro was less experienced. He was essentially a high-ranking banker. He had royal connections, which is why he was where he was. His job, the vice-admiral's job, was to sail on the more seaworthy San Pedro and let the pilot of that vessel follow the instructions of the flagship. Essentially, he didn't have to do anything. But when those royal inspectors decreed that the roles of the two ships be switched, De Campos had to take over the San Pedro. The more experienced sailor took up command of the more seaworthy vessel, and a banker had to take command of the dangerously unsuitable Concepcion. Everyone immediately protested this decision. Even the banker, he knew this was a bad idea, but the decision stood. It was in this precarious state of affairs, with official protests on record, that the fleet set sail from Veracruz for Havana. Havana was the last stop for everyone before making their way for the Bahama Channel and home. They were among the best-guarded port cities in the Caribbean, and they had shipwrights and shipyards and crewmen to take the place of everyone who had been lost. You had to stop in Havana. And once they arrived, de Campos disembarked and raised his concerns with the royal authorities there. 
Now, the Havana inspectors upheld the decision and forced the fleet once again to set sail, but the very first night out from Cuba, the Concepcion was discovered to be leaking badly. So the fleet turned around and headed back to Havana. Now, the officials here, who were direct agents of the crown, were furious. Don't you realize that this money is needed back in Madrid? Great events are being held up here. But de Campos pointed out that if they continued on, half of the yearly budget, half of the three years budget of the entire kingdom and empire of Spain would be somewhere at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Those royal officials, their pride a bit wounded, had to begrudgingly concede the point. A team of divers found a breach in the hull of the Concepcion and set about to repair the ship. Now that took almost three weeks. When, though, the ship was finally judged seaworthy, the officials ordered them to set sail immediately. This was on the 20th of September. That's a full month after that ancient wisdom decreed one should set sail from Havana. De Campos and that banker protested again, but it was in vain. They set sail far too late. And we're going to leave it there this week. This story, the story of the Concepcion, is, as I said, complicated. There are conflicting reports from eyewitnesses and government agents and generations of treasure hunters. However, we're lucky to have those conflicting reports. What makes this story worth telling is the fact that we can. So often, when we talk about ships lost at sea, it's something like, well, they left on the 3rd of May and were never heard from again. And we are far from done with the Concepcion. I couldn't even get close to fitting it in a single episode, not and tell the story the way it should be. We have decades of this story left to tell, although... Don't worry, much of that will be spent below the water. Next time, we're going to conclude the story of the Concepcion's final voyage. And then we're going to introduce the players who will bring this story out of the waves and out of the shadows. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon... Anyone who has left us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show. Everybody who has donated through the website. And everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, online or in real life. All of you make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as usual, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.
Tonight